Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Harp Song for a Radical, The Life and Times of Eugene Victor Debs, written by Margaret Young. We're on chapter 14. This one's a bit longer. Page 47. The tailor, Wilhelm Bittling, with his red cap upon his geranium-colored locks, his short red cape held together by pins, his long workman's blouse hanging loose, his short knee breeches, his red shoes with broken heels, and their soles tied on, on by ropes, had danced around the sweet-smelling hind with loud squawks of a mutuality of interests that he recognized he shared with him as his long-lost revolutionary brother and fellow bard, and had flopped himself onto a bench against the white wall, and had not removed his red cap but his red shoes, which had no splayed toes such as he should have had if he had been a swan or some other kind of feathered bird-man, as true to his habits as the wandering apprentice tailor, he had propped first one leg up under his chin and then the other leg, and he, who with his passion for cleanliness had devoted himself since his release from among the prison shades to washing his long-tailed shirts, he, who with his long razor had also been for some time scraping the blue prison mold from the soles of his bare feet, where it had been heavy enough to leave flowers in his tracks, had shaved and scraped away the red wounds which, like flowers, spotted the skin of his bare, bleeding legs, at the same time that he had spouted on and on to the amused, startled hind that Jesus was about to bring his kingdom down out, from, out of the clouds. The boundaries of nations will crumble when the Son of Man comes to judge the quick and the dead. Wheatling's messages, which he had seemed to think were a unique contribution, possibly because of certain eccentric, eccentric weavings or crochets of his own upon what might be called the great universalist socialist loom, had not been too different from those of the chartist agitators who proposed the same ameliorative, ameliorative vision as street-corner salvationists, with their belief that in the world to come there would be corn for all the mother quails, and all the little quails who had not one grain of corn and were left to starve. We are all children of one father, and we all have a common destiny to be happy here, and then forever after in the great beyond. So far as the poor people were concerned, Hein had given to them his sympathies, for after all he was poor, haunted by the threat of poverty, and well knew that until the moneyless state arrived, if it ever should arrive, money was a necessity for the support of his life as it would be for his widow's life when he was gone over the great abyss, which never accurately divided, in view of so many shifting clouds, this world from the next. He had crossed back and forth so many times. As Hein would recall on his mattress grave in Paris, when after some years of leading a life that had been death in the midst of life, and thus had transpired on a shadowy borderline between life and death, he was at last dying, and gave up his wandering thoughts to his childhood home in Germany, to which he, the wandering Jew, would never return, not even when he was dead in his, and in his coffin. He had left the request in his will that he should be buried at Montmartre, where he had so long been the ghost, so that if his had been a seed carried in a clump of earth on the foot of a bird plowman, it would have fallen on no German clump of earth. He had thought much of the flight of the unemployed from Germany to other lands in search of employment, the artisans in search of work as hod carriers, bricklayers, tailors, weavers of cloth. Thou tookest thy flight toward sunshine and happiness, naked and poor returnest thou back. German truth, German shirts, one gets them worn to tatters in foreign parts. Deadly pale are thy looks, but take comfort, thou art at home. One lies warm in German earth, warm as by the old pleasant fireside. Many one, alas, became crippled and can get home no more. 
Longingly he stretches out his arms. God have mercy upon him. Wilhelm Wittling, too, immigrating to America once for a brief visit before his permanent return to the land where he had hoped to found in some distant, in some dim distant western state his worker's paradise, his Zion, which was never to be realized, but took a long time dying as in a dream that never really dies, as some other dreamer must take over the dream which transcends the individual. So far as the impressionistic old bird gentleman Hein was concerned, his relationship to the inner world of his unconsciousness was very much of the same mysterious chaos as that to the outer world of his acutely sensitive consciousness, which was endowed with historical imagination presenting itself in many symbolic forms. Illusion might be reality, and rea reality might be illusion. It was said that his was a world of drift. He had distinguished between mediocrity of talents and his own genius, which had filled the heavens with the perfume of the rose, causing intoxication among the gods. He was not careless as to the children of his brain, no mere flash-in-the-pan numbers having been his. He had written to a fellow poet when he was still the fledgling poet himself, his plea that he should not, be spare, that he should not spare the critical scalpel, even if it was his dearest child that might have been born with a little hunchback goiter or other excrescence. To be strict with oneself was the artist's first commandment. His horizons were never made of a choice between the ether on the one hand and the or on the other, cap, capital O-R. Just as he knew, the either or, anyway, just as he knew that the real wo wound for which there was no balm was the creation itself, in which, as had been described by the embattled 18th century philosopher Dennis Diderot, master of dreams, who's under the spell of Lawrence Stern, Thought depended upon associations of images streaming at random through the dreamer's mind like the music caused by the vibrations of strings. It is this vibration, the inevitable resonance, which holds the object present while the mind is busied about the quality that belongs to the object. But vibrating strings have yet another property, that of making other strings vibrate. And that is how the first idea recalls a second, the two of them a third, so that there is no limit to the ideas awakened and interconnected in the mind of the philosopher. This instrument makes surprising leaps, and an idea once aroused may sometimes get bleh. This instrument makes surprising leaps, and an idea once aroused may sometimes set vibrating a harmonic at an inconceivable distance. If this phenomena may be observed between resonant strings that are lifeless and separate, why should it not occur between points that are alive and connected between fibers that are continuous and sensitive? Being himself a citizen of cloud lands, Hein had come up before Karl Marx with the idea that religion was the opium provided by despotic emperors to the people upon whom they placed their rule in the age of iron and steel. But still, and all, he had been closer to the angel-infested Swedenborg and opium-drenched Coolridge than to the beloved infidel or agnostic Robert Owen, with his almost undisturbed, almost unquenchable faith that the mechanical genius of mankind would bring this world from the darkness to the light, the golden light of the new moral world, if only the parts of human nature were known and understood in a way to make possible the universal brotherhood. Had Heine long ago lost faith in the idea that the machine would bring reform, the machine, if anything, it contributed to his sense of tragic woe in a way transcending the immediate scene, in a way that was not merely national but international. Among Heine's poems that showed distrust of industrial progress was one that told of the white horse among grasses craning up his neck as he and a thistle 
chomping ass, watched the lightning speed of the steam locomotive and coach and the steam car as they went rattling by, black smoke issuing from the funnel like a flag. The rattling had been everywhere and had frightened the white horse in the farmyard. Trembling in every limb, he had sighed to the thistle-cropping ass that if nature had not made him white, he would have turned as white as chalk, for he had realized that there was no future for the equine species. The future that lay ahead for the white horse was cruel and stormy, black as the black smoke emitted from the iron beast, which provided a steam engine competition with which horses could not compete. For when men learned that they could drive without the help of a horse, there would not be a horse left alive, and there would be no hay, and there would be no grass. No one would feed the horses in their stalls, for men's hearts were hard as stones, and would give nothing free, and the horses could not steal like people and did not fawn like men and dogs. The ass, chomping upon two thistles more, had not feared the terrible fate which might lie ahead for the haughty horses, so that whether they were white or black or dapple or bay, they would be packed off pell-mell. It was as if in the midst of a revolutionary battle for freedom from despotic powers, Hein had charged about upon his battle-horse, striking at his enemies with his sword, it had never been gripped by the fever or the joy or the fear of the battle, and had kept an inner calm such as might have occurred in his lands of fable and dream. Not surprisingly, in view of his tendency to break himself into two or more persons whom he reluctantly recognized might be one of many pluralistic particles like sand grains, each with its individual portrait, Hein had noticed that his thoughts had sojourned elsewhere. According to the revolutionary Ludwig Born, whom God had captured in his butterfly net in 1838, Hein, with his attacks upon demagogues, whether they were of the higher orbs or of the lower depths, had caused him with his revolutionary claims to be of no help but a hindrance to the progressive movement before which he had gotten into the way very much as if he were a boy chasing butterflies on a battlefield. Which, of course, in Hein's eyes must have always been mist-shrouded. His memory of the three days' reign of terror had been that he had not enjoyed mounting the scaffold and having his head cut off every day as had been his experience then. Hein's revolutionary theory was that there would be plenty in this world for everybody if only there were fair play. Wine and roses and myrtle and lilies and bread for all men, women and children and sweet peas and little pea pods for them to feed their little mouths on. And that's something else that's been... That's been repeated up until today, that it's not that we lack resources, it's that we lack equal distribution of those resources, like food and things. So I, that's something that's still said. Everybody would, there would be plenty if, there was, if it was distributed fairly. He had seen how the rich, well-fed people raised by a barricade of laws by which to protect themselves from the starving poor, how they had at hand judges, hangmen, rope, and gallows for those who crossed the barricade. Yep. He was a believer in the democracy of the gods, but surely the individual genius of the great poets should not be beaten down with hammer and nails by the forces of mediocrity, as if all were not members of the same guild of journeyman tailors, even like Vitling. This poor tailor who imagined that he would become the king of tailors in a utopian world, and who, with his long legs like a grasshopper's folded under him, supposed that he knew a way by which to protect all grasshoppers from the winter blast which was to come. Vitling's revolutionary philosophy was old hat to hine. He knew that when an avalanche was getting ready to fall, it took its own course. He had written to his friend Karl Marx to complain of Wilhelm Vitling's nauseating familiarity, his assumption that he was his colleague and fellow revolutionary poet, and share with him of his enthusiastic desire to reform the old world of capitalism and bring in the new world of cooperative communitarianism, which would spring up out of the grave of the old world. 
Hine now as he approached his coffin bed where he would lie for years, with his limbs as soft as helpless to give him support as if they were cotton under him, came increasingly to view communism as that which would cut down the very flower of civilization. There should have been a broad ground in which the anarchist Hine discovered that there were aspects in which he could be in harmony with the anarchist Wittling, but their brief meeting had been a time filled with discords grating upon the nerves and neglected author of a Sicilian weaver song, and now they were both wind-blown birds of passage, going in different ways, one to his grave, one to the new world, where he was never to realize his golden utopian dream. Alrighty, thanks.